You are warmly welcome to listen to WDBE Talks, the podcast for world of digital built environment. Let's start the journey to a sustainable urban future together by unlocking urban supersensing. Hello and welcome to this episode of WDBE Talks. My name is Jack Geary and I recently sat down with Dr. Sophie Pelsmakers, the Associate Professor for Sustainable Architecture and Sustainable Housing Design at Tampere University. Our talk covered the importance of implementing human-led sensor technology and the role it can play in saving energy and improving quality of life. Sophie, thanks so much for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about your career to date and what projects you're currently working on? Um, So I was born in Belgium and um, I'm a bit of a special case because uh, I studied architecture in the mid 90s in Belgium and and I wasn't actually sure if I wanted to be an architect after three years and so I met some Erasmus students from the UK and um, I then found out that in the UK you do like an internship before you continue with your master's so I ended up moving to London working for a bit, realized I wanted to be an architect. And uh, because in Belgium, it was very uh, non-contextual, a lot of the work we did. It was very, I felt like I was being trained to just design pretty buildings for no real reason for rich people. And um, coming from a working class background, I didn't really fit in and didn't understand that at all. Um, And so, yeah, I never really left uh, UK until Brexit, basically. So I ended up then working in practice, working on really meaningful projects, social housing, also a lot of NHS buildings, wards that, um, you know, under the new Labour government in the late 90s, they converted them from like, you know, when there was a lot of women and men together on psychiatric wards to separate them. And they were like on listed buildings, also children's wards for the NHS. So for me, that was very meaningful work. And that was sort of really um, the start of my career in architecture, but then also, um, when I then graduated with my, from my master's, um, I ended up doing a sustainability degree and then I ended up teaching on it and becoming the head of sustainability at a, a quite large uh, housing design practice, Levy Bernstein in London. And then um, realized that I really like teaching, especially because when you work in industry, you work maybe on one or two projects every year, if that, maybe over five years, because they're so large and it takes so long and they're so complex to get built. And so I felt that through um, teaching, I could really have a bigger impact because I could teach a few hundred students every year and they would all work on one or two projects a year and then make them more sustainable. So about 10 years ago, I then ended up leaving traditional practice for good to do their more academic work. And then I ended up doing my PhD uh, age 36, a master's in research at UCL and finishing my PhD when I was 40. That's now five years ago. And then Brexit happened literally actually the week before I, had my, I finished my PhD. Um, and although I did become British and I lived half my life in Britain, I'm also married to European and I felt like I wasn't sure I wanted to be in the UK outside of Europe, particularly also as a young academic, you know, you were not young, but young in experience. Um, you rely on the European funding to further your career and, and advance science. And the fact that we would lose that was a big thing. So I ended up then Brexiting to Finland via Denmark first. But of course, a lot of my friends and contacts have my life has been and my industry work has been in the UK. 
Um, and I've been here now two years um, and I've just got promoted to associate professor. And what's amazing what I do here, um, I've been saying that I lead a research group, but in all fairness, um, it's more that I have the privilege to represent them because they're an awesome team of people from all different kind of uh, areas of research in sustainable housing in particular. So we cover areas of like adaptable, inclusive design, flexible buildings, also material resources, the then zero energy and so forth. So it's kind of like an amazing group of uh, young and very clever scholars. Um, and then we teach in that area as well. And so I basically represent that group um, at the university, we're quite a small architecture school and we do research in that area. So do you feel there's a difference between the industry understanding of sustainability and current public perception? I think generally people really tend to think of sustainability, um, you know, as in doing things a little bit better, less bad, minimizing impact. That one of the big problems we face is that, that that's doing thing minimizing impact has been something that would have helped us mitigate climate change but we haven't done enough of that minimization at the scale we needed and not deep enough and now we need gigantic transformation and transition this is not anymore doing less bad this is not anymore about um, doing things a little bit better giving up a few things or changing a few things this is actually much more fundamental what we what we need to do actually. And I think that's something that, um, yeah, that, that is really lacking at the moment. And I would say that's overall <clears throat> has been even the approach I would say in housing design that we always think of how can we do things better, have less of an impact. But now it's a real shift in a debate in industry and in academia. And of course, we just had last week the IPCC report, but those of us working in the field have known this for years, that this is shifting not from mitigating climate change, it's now adaptation to it. We have to prepare for the hotter summers, more water, more flooding uh, in the built environment. Um, we have to prepare for resources. We lose biodiversity issues, actual huge um, problems elsewhere. And um, so we need to adapt and make sure our buildings and our built environment can adapt, but also we need to start thinking about restoring, restoring the impact we create when we build, but also restoring the past impacts in the city that have happened. So it's like creating this positive impact, not just minimizing, but actually almost like giving back more than the damage that a new development can create. And that's, of course, very tricky because there's not many examples that have happened. How do you measure it? How do you know for sure the idea that you have will get built as it is? And that's then again where sensors and, and monitoring things, um, you know, digitization is actually really important. So does sensor monitoring and digital technologies play a role in your current work and research? Well, at the moment, so particularly in our work, um, there's a big gap between the idea of a sustainable housing development and then what is actually delivered on the ground. And that, we call it a performance gap. And that gap is caused, for example, by construction that didn't quite make it from the drawing into reality because it has to be constructed for real, with real materials under real weather conditions. So things can go wrong there. Our models are not very good at predicting things. But then also, it's then very much also behavior of people. So we assume people will use their homes in a certain way, and then they don't. And then we blame it on the user. But actually, it's us not understanding properly the way that people might use buildings and this is also for schools a case and for office blocks and so on and so a lot of the um, solution there lies into 
both um, monitoring how buildings perform so we understand better and that means collecting energy data um, that means um, it could even be seen in particularly then in non-housing in which spaces are occupied at different times how are they used where's the heating on or off what are the temperatures people demand what is the humidity are the windows open at the same time as the heating's on so monitoring spaces and the associated energy use will give us a really good idea then of why is it so much higher or not what is happening um, and then the other side of course is also that some of the urban sensing is also we can create this nudge architecture whereby we make it easier for people to make the right decisions so that could be um, instead of taking the lift to take the stairs or instead of you know they might get um, you know if it's very sunny and that the building the, the home might overheat that um, there is either an app that says you should lower the blinds now um, you know or close your window because it's warmer outside than inside so they can be nudging this way through smart sensors but it can also be at the scale of actually not just warning the user to do it, but actually the blinds get automate, automatically closed so that there can be these sensors that way. And I think particularly for me, what's interesting is that we don't use urban sensing to create more active systems so that it's not like, okay, it's too hot now, cooling comes on, you know, because it can monitor and do those things as well and already does that in, in, in non-housing buildings. But the interesting thing is in housing in most Euro uh, Northern European countries, we don't need active cooling, but these uh, the sort of sensors and, and smart tech can really help change the behavior of people or it can help automate some of these passive measures like instead of cooling that goes on it's about open closing windows closing the blinds opening them up again for good daylight they can really help reduce energy use rather than actually activating active systems so although it's a, a building management system or a smart tech um, that helps other users to act or it does it for the users is still based on these passive measures that are energy saving and not active. So it's like digital and smart, and then it's all about the systems that are on that way. But I actually think that we can run a lot of passive um, activation uh, that way. There is, of course, the point that putting sensor technology in homes can create real ethical and practical problems. Are these issues that you and your students are encountering and tackling? Yeah, yeah. So, and actually, the one that that everybody talks about is, of course, a collection of data, right? That if you really have these uh, sort of smart sensors and somebody, basically, data is collected of when you get up, when the light goes on, when you have a shower, how long you're taking a shower, how much water you use, how much energy you use, and so on and so forth. And of course, there have been data breaches. Um, there have been a recent one in Finland, not with things like that, but data breaches of just like uh, medical records that were kept. And you hear this, and people are, of course, concerned of what happens with that data how could it be used how is it collected can people then know oh they're not at home now we can go burgle or research has shown that when people can see uh, how they compare to their neighbors or friends in recycling or energy use they might go oh we're not doing so good let's make an extra effort you know um, so it can be used in a positive way but the bit that concern, concerns me the most especially in housing design is um, we have to be very careful not transferring because of course a lot of the urban sensing is actually really started from commercial buildings and schools and the danger is, is that we end up moving that thinking into housing which first of all then we're managing the building and probably using more energy than before but also we're facing um, we don't have one estate manager like every dweller is responsible for their own home so it means that you end up um, with vulnerable people, older people that might not actually be interested or able to use these systems. So we have to be very careful 
with the ethical side of using a lot of these systems that we don't end up in a situation whereby um, to live comfortably in a home, you need to be able to use those systems. And if you can't, you don't have that comfortable life. It's then about really social justice issues and inclusivity and accessibility. So we have to be very careful that they're almost complementary. Of course, they have to be easy to use for everybody. And I think we're a long way away from that. When an engineer looks at how something's used, it's very much still top-down driven instead of bottom-up. And so we're really looking at it from the user perspective up of what is what are really the issues, where are the risks, and how do we how can we resolve that? And I think we need more of that collaborative sort of human-centric approach to technology and sensors and tech, because if we're not careful, we're actually really excluding people. And then they are excluded, even if it doesn't harm them, they're then excluded from the benefit, which in itself is unethical. So would you say there's a human element in the deployment of sensor technology that's a genuine risk of being overlooked? I think it has great potential. I think at the moment we don't know enough where it creates that difference, particularly in homes. So some of the research is very mixed that the theory suggests that it should save energy and that we can use it to really nudge people. But then actually, when you look at it over long term, it usually doesn't make a huge difference. But then it's also like, well, what is the technology? Is it really suitable for people? Like how, how user friendly is it? What is the interface? And I do think having more of that bottom up creation of these apps and, and the needs and understanding how people live rather than sort of top down of many products, because of course it suits a certain number of people, but not you know, for the rollout of the wider masses. So I actually think it does definitely have a role to play, but perhaps maybe the role to play is not so much in um, in uh, energy reduction. Maybe it's more in having as, as little energy use as possible, but to really create comfort. So it is about fresh, like health and well-being support, being more active, being able to meet with their neighbors and having opportunities for this becomes more accessible and visible to them, being able to change their homes more easily. Um, and we have to make sure it's not intrusive, that it's really integrated in people's homes rather than something extra they have to do. Because, of course, I've mostly been talking about new buildings, but what we really have to tackle is we need to renovate all these buildings that are 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years old. And how do we do that at scale without moving people out? And I think there's real room there to look for engaging with residents and the contractors and the construction people. Um, how to and use smart tech and sensing to make that run really smooth on site or much smoother than we currently have. And you can monitor things like dust and air pollution and uh, noise, and but also that residents know exactly what's happening when and you know and keep up to date and you know so that they're much more engaged and part of it and that they feel they have agency to some extent um, to make this sort of um, yeah make them more part of the process. And are there any major obstacles to making this positive change? I would say the biggest obstacle is money, money and lack of regulations. If we said tomorrow, this is how you have to do it, we would create systemic change. If you think about the pandemic, would you have imagined two years ago, we would be told you now have to work from home and you have to wear masks and you know on public transport is obligatory and you might get fined we go that's crazy yes somehow governments have managed to do that when you when you can show to people the benefit of why this is done for the community then actually it's been remarkable how many people actually go with it and support it the problem is is that in a democracy and in free societies we don't think we should have regulation 
But we are not going to solve the climate crisis without actually creating a level playing field in development. And that's why the construction industry is quite conservative on the whole and quite slow um, in moving forward and doing things unless they can see a benefit to them economically and no disbenefit to it. And I think that's actually our biggest obstacle at the moment. In certain quarters, I really get the sense of urgency. Like we need to really do something, we have to do it now and we have to really transform everything. But then actually on the ground, a lot of people just keep doing the same thing and they might go, yeah, maybe we shouldn't do that anymore. Like they don't, there isn't that sense of urgency and the scale of transformation. It's still that thinking, yeah, we have to do things a bit better. But no, we actually have to really shift. It's like turning a Titanic around, not hitting the iceberg. And if we don't actually say and make regulations, you can no longer steer it in the direction of the iceberg, we're going to keep going at it. It's more our own attitude and values that are holding us back, actually, and that we're not then creating the regulations and we're not then moving forward. And then there's no incentive for the people on the ground, the clients and the people who are actually paying for the developments to make a difference. Yeah, despite the fact we've had the hottest year on record, we've had so many heat waves, wildfires, flooding happening in Europe alone. Um, it's been a strange summer of uh, records that we you know, never imagined we'd, we would see in such close succession of highest temperatures and so on. Um, yet we are not really uh, getting into gear, getting into action. And I don't know what it will take. But I never give up hope. I have to keep believing that, you know, we can make these changes through exemplary projects. And finally, Sophie, is that the kind of material that you're keen to cover for your keynote speech for WDBE 2021? Um, so I and what I want to do in my talk is I actually would like to unpick some of this sort of where I think it could really be a solution where we've seen a positive impact, but also, okay, this is where it's not gone great and where it's gone wrong. That's not to say that, therefore, we shouldn't do any of it. It's just to be mindful of how we apply it. And when we talk about residents, we're not a homogenous mass of people who live in a block. We have different needs, different ways of working, different amounts of time and different ability to negotiate with these issues. And I think we often forget about that. Sophie? That's fantastic. Thanks so much for your time and take care. Thanks for listening. Join us at wdbe.org.